That song is one that I, uh, I didn't know before coming here. Won't be very long, but boy, do I ever love singing it with you. And that is, that is now one of my favorite songs in our book. Uh, it's beautiful. The message is so clear and, and so worthy to be sung. I appreciate the enthusiasm with which you sung it tonight. And I know that God does too. Tonight we're in Daniel chapter 9. And I would like you to turn over there. Uh, we're not going to waste any time tonight. We have a lot to talk about. In Daniel chapter 9, we have two-thirds of the chapter uh, dedicated to Daniel's prayer to God for himself and for his people. And the last third provides a prophecy concerning 70 weeks or 70 sevens, as some translations put it. We're going to spend some of our time talking about the prayer of Daniel, looking at his honesty and, and his reverence for God in prayer, and the way that he seeks forgiveness and restoration for his people. We're going to learn about prayer from that. And then after we've spent that time, we will discuss the prophecy of 70 weeks found in the last third of Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Daniel looked at, at the writings of Jeremiah the prophet. And he looked at what Jeremiah had said about the time that they were to spend in captivity and noted that it was 70 years. And he knew that that time was drawing to an end. And so he begins uh, praying to God all the more fervently than he had before. As we examine his prayer you'll note three different parts to it. And I think this is important to recognize that Daniel prays in a very, uh, very deliberate sort of fashion. He prays with praise for God. He prays and confesses his sins and the sins of his people. And then he prays and requests God's forgiveness and his compassion for them. Those are the three recurring themes that you'll spot in this prayer. We're not going to read the whole thing tonight. I'm going to draw out a few important pieces of it. But I want you to know something. I, I took some time as, we were, as I was studying this, and I did something that I'm not used to doing. I color-coded the prayer. And I don't know if you've done that in the past, but I suggest you do with this prayer in particular, that you take the time and read from verse 4 to verse 19 of Daniel chapter 9, and with one color of pencil, underline the praise for God that he offers. Then with another color, underline his confession of sin when it happens. And then with another color, underline his seeking of forgiveness. And what you'll find is that in verse 4, Daniel praises God at the very beginning of his communication to him. Then he spends verse 5 through verse 11 in a block of confession, both of his own sins and the sins of his people, going into great detail concerning exactly what they had done. And then from verse 12 through verse 15, he spends time praising God for fulfilling his promises, even though they were in the negative sense toward the people of Israel. And then from verse 16 to verse 19, he spends that section seeking God's compassion and His forgiveness. And when you 
make those underlines in your Bible and you see those colors popping out, it, it says something to you about prayer that just can't be put into words. And something else you'll note. In his block of confession, you'll note in the beginning of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 9, even as he's confessing, he can't help but offer some praise to his God. And in his block of praise from verse 12 through verse 15, you'll note at the end of verse 13, 14, and 15, even as he praises his God, he can't help but remember his own sins. I think there's a great deal of wisdom to be found there. The attitude in confession is still one that praises God. And the attitude in praise is one that still recognizes and honestly confesses sin and then seeks forgiveness. You'll note uh, some things in particular in this prayer. In verses 7 and 8, he uses a phrase, uh, open shame. Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, that is to the people of Israel, open shame as it is this day. In verse 8, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Open shame is shame on, on their faces, literally. You can't hide what's on your face. What's on your face is visible to everyone and it can't be hidden. They have been shamed publicly for their sins against God by being removed from the promised land, by being destroyed in such a fashion that could only be done by God. And Daniel acknowledges not only that that happened, but that they deserved it, that God was righteous in all of it. In verse 11, you'll notice he mentions the curse. He says, indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath. And he continues on. But the curse, if you want to write in a verse reference, I would write in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 and verse 25. Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and 25. And I'll read to you what those say. This is the time when the people of Israel were again agreeing to the law. And Moses says to them in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he spends a great deal of time listing out all the things that would happen to them. But a particular note is verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 16, Jerusalem in the end of it had become a reproach. To all those around them. That is, they became a cautionary tale told to children by their parents to get them to straighten up. They might say something like, you remember what happened to Jerusalem, don't you? You don't want to end up like them, do you? Well, then you better be good, little Johnny. Otherwise, you'll end up like them. 
That's the idea of a reproach. They were a, a, a public spectacle of what happens when you do evil. In the section of God's praise, uh, God has carried out His promises. The promises of the curse, that is. And that glorifies Him because His word, whether pleasant or unpleasant, has been found absolutely true. It happened exactly as it was written in the law of Moses. And when God punishes the wicked for their wickedness, He is found righteous. And Daniel recognizes that. And in his confession of his sins, he then takes time to praise God for punishing them for their sins. That is a man of great character who looks to his heavenly Father, recognizes the punishment that's been handed on to him and to his people, and accepts it and praises him for it because he knows that it was what had to be done. It was what had to be done to make the Lord righteous. To keep Him just. And then in verses 16 through 19, as Daniel seeks forgiveness, you'll notice that it is the last section of his prayer. He doesn't come in and demand forgiveness from God, but rather only after thoroughly confessing his sins, thoroughly praising God for righteousness, that Daniel asks for forgiveness and compassion. But you'll note that he asks for forgiveness in verse 18 because God is that great. Because God is that compassionate and not because anyone has done anything to earn it. Listen to it in verse 18. He says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion." Even after everything that Daniel and his three companions did under Babylonian rule, under Persian rule, under all of these places that they were and all the difficulties they endured faithfully, he still looks at that and he says, I have no way to balance the scales of sin. And that is a truth we need to realize. No amount of good deeds or great faithfulness can balance the scales in your favor because of your good works. Our sins always outweigh them. Sin deserves death no matter how many good deeds are placed around it. And the only way to be saved from it is by the compassion and the grace of our God. Daniel understood that. Teaches that very thing in the 18th verse. We ought to latch on to that and teach it to each other, remind each other of it. When we sin, we ought to approach prayer with as much reverence and praise for God as we can muster and with as much honesty about our sins as Daniel had. When we ask for forgiveness, we should never discount the quality or the cost of that forgiveness. It cost the blood of Jesus to forgive our sins. And so remember that as you seek His forgiveness. Recognize it's not given to you because you have done anything to deserve it. But because of everything Jesus did for you. 
and come reverently, come humbly before God to seek His forgiveness. That is a lesson all its own. And if you can, I want you to partition that part of the lesson in your mind. Set it aside and remember it for later time. And now reopen your thinking box. Because we've come to the more difficult part of this chapter. There's a prophecy in the latter part of Daniel 9 that concerns 70 weeks. And it is the subject of much speculation Gabriel is sent to Daniel in verse 20, and starting with verse 24, he gives an understanding to Daniel concerning a vision of 70 weeks. I'm going to begin by just reading verses 24 through verse 27, and then we'll discuss some of what we see there and some of the speculation that's offered up about it. Verse 24, Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now some of you in the end of verse 24 will have the most holy place. Others will have the most holy one. And still others may have simply the most holy holy. You need to understand something very simple. The reason for the discrepancy is that translators have added a word on the end based on their understanding of this prophecy. The manuscript itself from which they translated simply says the most holy. And so even though the translation I'm reading from inserts a word at the end, I'm not reading it because it's not there. And I want to be honest with what is there. So to anoint the most holy, he says, verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt or it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many For one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. If you're like me, that's a whole lot of, huh? And that's, that's kind of the way that was when I first looked at this. And so I'm going to do my best to share with you the things I see in the Scriptures that will help us 
to identify, define, and correctly understand this prophecy. But before we do that, I'm going to give you some things that are absolutely false. And I need to be clear about that because if I'm not, you'll misunderstand and think I'm teaching it. What we're about to discuss are the errant thoughts, speculations that some have offered up about this. And I only mention it because it is so prevalent in our society. We've talked before about those who are called premillennialists. And there was a. Anyone remember Marshall Keeble? I, I, I was told by a guy older than me, he used to have a way of explaining premillennialist or premillennialism. He said pre means before, milli means a thousand. Ennial or annual means year. And ism, oh, that means it ain't so. <laughs> and that just, that, that tickled me because it is so very blatantly exactly the truth. But let's talk about what some have decided to believe about this. They believe that between verse 26 and 27... That the last week of the prophecy has not yet begun. And that we reside between those verses in something they call the great parentheses. You'll note in your Bible and in mine that it's not there. There is no parenthesis there. just continues on. But they call it the great parenthesis as though there is some time that exists between those verses. And that the last week of the prophecy has not yet begun. And that when it does, that last week, each day of that week stands for a year of time. And they call that time the tribulation on earth. You may have caught that in some books, the Left Behind series, or maybe in those movies, or maybe just in hearing someone talk about this stuff, that they talk about the great tribulation that's coming, and it'll last for seven years. This is where they get that, and it's the only place they get it. And so this great tribulation is supposed to come, and they say that when that final week begins that the people of God will be taken away to a safe place in an event they call the rapture. And they believe that those who are the saints of God will simply disappear off the face of the earth. They will go to some place that is unnamed, but they will be safe from the tribulation. And then after that seven years is completed, Jesus, they say, will return to earth to establish a physical kingdom and reign for a literal 1,000 years along with all those saints. There are some other things they also believe that prompt these thoughts. That is that they believe it was God's original plan to establish an earthly kingdom when Jesus came to earth the first time. And that he, in fact, failed to fulfill this prophecy at that time. And failed to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 at that time. 
because the Jews rejected him. And so, because Jesus could not do what he hoped to do, he set up the church as sort of a plan B. And now he's waiting until he can successfully return to earth and establish that earthly kingdom. And they say, finally fulfill the prophecies of Daniel 9 and Daniel 2. That's really weird. Not only is it weird, but it's not what the Scriptures teach at all. And so I'd like now to give you what I consider to be the right understanding of this prophecy of 70 weeks. And I'm going to give you as much Scripture as I can to prove that this is the right understanding. That way, when you come across folks who are presenting this idea of tribulation and rapture and thousand years and all this stuff that you understand not only where they're coming from, but where they slip and where they need some correction of their understanding. This prophecy, we're getting into what I consider to be true things now, just so we're not misunderstanding. This prophecy concerns the rebuilding of Jerusalem, number one. Number two, it concerns the coming of the Messiah. Number three, it concerns His crucifixion. Number four, it concerns all that would be accomplished because of His crucifixion. Number five, it concerns the destruction of Jerusalem once again by the Roman army led by a man by the name of Titus heir to the Roman throne in about 70 A.D. We're going to set aside the number of 70 weeks or 77s, but we do need to understand that it is periods of time. And we need to pay attention when the period of time is longer or shorter. Let's look at the events. And let's see if we can put together a timeline together that makes sense. In verse 24, we have an overview of what must be accomplished during the time of this vision's fulfillment. You notice 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. And then he gives a series of things that would be accomplished in that time frame. He says, to finish transgression, number one. Number two, to make an end of sin. Three, to make atonement for iniquity. Now, if we just stop there, you could probably tell me who accomplished those things and exactly when he accomplished them, couldn't you? If I ask you, who made an atonement for iniquity? Who was the only one who could atone for iniquity? Well, that's Jesus, our Messiah. Very simple, very plain. And see if these other things make sense with what he came to do. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Yes, to seal vision and profit. That is, not to keep them secret, but to confirm them or fulfill them. To seal vision and profit, to anoint the most holy. Well, that's Jesus, the one who would come, the most holy, the anointed one, the Messiah. 
Looking at this list of six goals that must be accomplished, I can only see how this looks toward the coming of Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Because no one else accomplishes those things, and never at any other time have they been accomplished in such grand fashion. So it only makes sense that we are looking ultimately toward the arrival of Christ. And now let's look, starting in verse 25, at the way the events play out. In verse 25, a decree would be issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That decree went forth from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 8. And if you're looking for a date, it's around 450 B.C. But it went in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8. It's recorded that that decree was given that Nehemiah should go back. And if you note closely, between the issuing of that decree and the coming of Messiah the Prince would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now I know not all of us are math people, but I think this one's easy for all of us. Seven weeks, the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. That's a fairly short span of time. And then in the 62 weeks marks the period of time between the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. In verse 26, you'll note after the 62 weeks, then those events play out. And so we have seven weeks and 62 weeks on a timeline. And then after though, you know, after that, then the events of verse 26 begin to transpire. So we have of a 70 week prophecy, 69 of them already accomplished by verse 26. And after that, that is once we've entered the final week of prophecy, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And don't tell me you need help understanding what that references. Jesus was put on the cross for our sins. This is a reference directly to that. Then he says, the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is not Jesus the Messiah because he's already been there. But I will tell you this. I mentioned a guy named Titus who was heir to the Roman throne. He was the first Roman emperor to succeed his father to the throne. And so that at the time he invades Jerusalem with his army, he has not yet come into power, but is a prince, an heir to the throne. And so he comes and he leads an army to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Of course, that city and sanctuary is Jerusalem itself. Now, verse 27 repeats the same events of verse 26 with emphasis on different details. He says, He, that is the Messiah, will make a covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week 
he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Sacrifice and grain offering are pieces of the old law. And you remember when Jesus was put on the cross, said it was finished and yielded up his spirit, then there was something that happened. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And it is at that time that the sacrifices of the old law hold no more importance to anyone for any reason. And the grain offerings and all the things that were there as part of that old system are done away. He put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And then it says, On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Now that references the Roman army coming to destroy Jerusalem, but that's not just because I say so. It's because Jesus said so. And if this has been lost on you as we've looked at Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22, let it not be lost on you tonight. In in Matthew 24, verse 15 through 22, Jesus references what He calls the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And if that language wasn't clear enough, Jesus actually says the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. And so if there was any doubt that maybe he just plucked those words out of the air because he thought they were good, he didn't. He plucked them out of the book of Daniel, out of this particular prophecy in the end of Daniel chapter 9 with reference to the end of the city of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman armies. And if you're wondering whether or not it really is an army he's talking about, Luke chapter 21 verse 20 does us a favor. Luke 21 verse 20 not only talks about the desolation, but he says when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her desolation is near. And so if there was any question about the interpretation of the end of Daniel chapter 9, let it rest now because Jesus Himself very clearly and plainly identified exactly what we're dealing with. And that is the Roman armies coming to destroy Jerusalem. They would surround her and destroy her. And in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22, Jesus gives some direction to those who would be alive around that time, 70 A.D. He gives some direction when they see the abomination of desolation, when they see the armies surrounding them. What are they supposed to do? Flee to the mountains. Flee on the rooftops out of the city. We've talked about that before, that the the buildings were so close to one another in Jerusalem that they actually had something called the road of rooftops. And you could just walk from one building to the next on top of the roof without any hazard to your health. And so he says, don't come down, flee. And don't enter the city from the field. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing. Why? Catherine could tell you it's harder to move around when you're pregnant. As could any woman who has gone through that. 
Woe to them because it will be harder to travel, harder to run from the surrounding armies if you are pregnant or nursing. Pray that it's not in winter, he says. Why? Because travel is harder in the winter. That's about the time that Catherine and I got married and I had to bring her out from Oklahoma to California with a moving truck and a trailer and that was miserable. We got stuck in Flagstaff. I'll tell you the story later if you want. It's harder to travel in winter, so pray it's not in winter or on a Sabbath. Why? Because those who clung to the old law couldn't travel on that day. Sure is hard to flee from an army when you can only go so far. Now look back to Daniel 9 verse 27 again. Daniel 9 27, the very end of it says, The one who makes desolate will do so until complete destruction is poured out on it. That's the end of the Roman Empire. Prophesied in Daniel to occur after the time of the Messiah and after the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's about as specific as you could get. And so let's run through this again just by piecing together the major historical events identified in Scripture itself. We have a fairly clear outline of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Number one, a decree is given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Number two, Jerusalem's built. That's seven weeks. Number three, the Messiah arrives after 62 more weeks bringing us into the last week of the prophecy. And in that final week of prophecy, the Messiah is crucified, accomplishing through His death, burial, and resurrection all the goals of verse 25. And the Messiah makes a covenant with the many. Remember what He said in Matthew 26, 28, This is My blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He makes a covenant with the many and then the abomination of desolation identified by Luke as the Roman armies comes and destroys Jerusalem. And then the Roman kingdom comes to an end. That's remarkably clearly outlined, I think. It's not a, an easy section of Scripture. Most would call it the most difficult verses in the book of Daniel. But I hope that's been made a little easier for you tonight. This prophecy provides a timeline of major events leading up to and immediately following the coming of the Messiah so that we should not wonder if Jesus was the one we were waiting for. He is the only one who matches every prophecy and every criterion in every passage concerning the anointed one from God. He is our Savior. He came. He died. He made a covenant with the many through His blood, putting an end to the old law and establishing the new. And it was after that time that Jerusalem was destroyed by Roman armies. And after that, they fell. From the prayer of Daniel... From the prayer of Daniel, we learn to approach God with great respect and humility. To seek forgiveness first by confession 
and prays for him. And then by requesting compassion, not because I deserve it, but because his son paid the price for my sins. A sacrifice for which we are all eternally grateful. That last section of Daniel 9, it amazes me that God has given us the tools to understand it, even within His Word, so that we shouldn't speculate as many do today. The more we study, the more we realize the true greatness and majesty of the God that we serve. I think that, you know, as a young man or a younger man, I should say, it wasn't as clear to me that that would be the case. But now as we continue looking in more and more passages together, it becomes abundantly clear. The majesty, the greatness, the might, the wisdom of our God. I hope that's becoming more and more apparent to you as we study together as well. Tonight, we offer an invitation as we close. It's an invitation for anyone who has a spiritual need. Are you a Christian who needs to repent of your sins and confess them and seek the forgiveness that God gives? If so, follow the pattern of Daniel. Pray to God with us, humbly, in honesty, confessing and seeking His forgiveness because of His compassion. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I hope that the things we've studied tonight have turned a few light bulbs on in your mind and made you think about where this Bible really came from. The fact that it is the Word of God. He is alive. And it will judge on the last day. I pray that tonight you'll be obedient to it. If you have heard the Gospel, if you believe it, and your belief in the message of Christ is prompting you to repent of your sins, then we would love to hear your confession of Him as the Son of God. And then we will baptize you in His name for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be raised a new creation, clean in the sight of God. If you have a spiritual need tonight, please come and make it known as we stand and sing.